Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Well, hey, there we go. Sweet. We just came off a series on apologetics, and in two weeks we're going to start a new series on sexuality. And we're going to take two weeks to just do a little series I want to do on discipleship. And specifically this morning, I want to look at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19. And I want to ask you this question as we begin. If I were to give you a brand new Christian, someone who just began to follow Jesus, and I said to you, please disciple this person, would you know what to do? Where would you start? What would you start with? What would you teach them first? Or what would you do with that individual first? And more importantly, where would you want that individual to end up? Maybe thinking to yourself, maybe we should start with the end in mind of where we're going. And how do we get that person to that place that we're trying to get them to? See, the word disciple, the word discipleship, making disciples, this word is ubiquitous within evangelical Christianity. It is a primary buzzword. And in one sense, it should be a primary buzzword. Because it summarizes the entire Christian life. And we say this a lot at Redemption, but it needs to sink home. Discipleship, following Jesus, is not something you do on Sunday. Well, it is. It's not something you only do on Sunday. Following Jesus has implications for your marriage, for your parenting, for your work, for, as Nate was saying, in every aspect of your life. It's not an activity that you switch on and off. It is the activity of the Christian life. But another way, I think... Discipleship has become a misleading term and often an elusive ideal, an elusive quest. It's become so many things to so many different people that I wonder if most people could provide a clear, cogent definition of what discipleship is and what a mature disciple looks like. Sometimes I ask the question, Why is discipleship so prominent? Where is the only place in all of Scripture where the word disciples is used? Make disciples? One time, Jesus uses the phrase make disciples in Matthew chapter 28. Paul does not pick up on that imagery. James does not pick up on that imagery. No one else picks up on that imagery. Does that make it unimportant? No. But it does ask and beg the question, why is there such an emphasis on this? And if there is such this big emphasis, which there is, I mean, the Southern Baptist Convention's mission statement says, to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to every person in the world and to make disciples of all nations. So the biggest denomination in our country, their mission statement is make disciples. 
The second largest, I believe, denomination in our country is the Assembly of God. There are charismatic brothers, and their mission statement says this, evangelize the lost, worship God, and disciple believers. And there's all sorts of, I got issues with all sorts of those things, but that's, another, that's next week maybe. And then the church family that we're a part of, Soma, we regularly use the phrase, we are disciples who make disciples. Like everywhere you go, whether it's a Baptist, conservative, whether it be a evangelical, charismatic, or you're in Soma, it is all about disciples. And we could multiply and multiply the word disciples being used in every Christian context. And it begs the question, if the primary emphasis, and this is on the screen, if the primary emphasis on the church is on making disciples, then I ask the question, why do we not see an ever-increasing growth, both in the numerical numbers and especially in the overall maturity and health of Christians in America? If everything's about discipleship, why is the church in constant decline, both numerically and I also want to say health in a healthy way? Because sometimes I feel like we're an ego Montoya. On the next slide, you keep using that word, but I do not think it means what you think it means. Anyone know what that's in reference to, what word they're using? Yes, all right, one person got it, all right. We keep using the word discipleship, but do we really know what we're talking about when we use that? And if it is so prominent, why are we seeing the decline in both the health and the numerical numbers of disciples in America? Well, lots of people give answers. One particular person on the next slide, Francis Chan, maybe you've heard of him, maybe you've heard of his book called Crazy Love. He says this, one of the reasons we see this in America is we've reduced discipleship to a canned program. And so many in the church end up sidelined in a spectator mentality that delegates disciple-making to pastors and professionals, ministers and missionaries. So, according to Francis Chan, one of the reasons why we don't know how to make disciples and we don't see disciples being made is because we reserve that role of making disciples to the professionals. So the only people who are responsible for making disciples are the super-Christians. And on recording, I have air quotes. (laughs) Super-Christians. The average Christian probably does not even know how to make a disciple and maybe doesn't even think it's their responsibility to be involved in making disciples. That's why they pay the people to do that work. They bring people to events to do that. And I think at Redemption Church, we have a statement that we don't believe that the many pay the few to go do ministry. We have a statement that says the few equip the many to go do ministry. And so I think that's a, it's a very interesting thing that Francis Chan is talking about. But I think there's more going on than just the fact that not everyone believes it's their responsibility. Another reason, another individual, Alan Hirsch, uh, in his book, Forgotten Ways, says this, I think it's fair to say that in the Western church, we have by and large lost the art of disciple-making. Why? 
Number one, we have no clear definition and process. Number two, partly because we have reduced discipleship to the intellectual assimilation of ideas. And number three, because of systemic consumerism in our own day, works directly against a true following of Jesus. I just want to look at two things from this particular quote. Number one, he mentions that there is no clear definition and no clear process. And I think that's important because if we actually want to achieve something, whatever that is, we need to have a clear understanding of what we're actually trying to create. It's like when you get the Ikea book and you take it out, don't you already have an idea of what it's going to look like? And so you just put it all together and you're like, oh, I forgot one piece and you take it all apart, right? Because you know what it, you have an idea of what it's going to look like at the end. And yet, I don't know that we have a clear idea of what it's going to look like at the end of that process. And we have no understanding of what we're trying to get to and no real ways to actually get there. And what I want to say at Redemption Church is we have a long way to go and to grow in this reality. I'm not saying that we have the best definition and the most clear process. But I think the lack of clarity creates great confusion. And confusion causes deformed disciples. Moreover, the pathways, the processes that churches often provide are misguided. And we're going to see they in and of themselves, the programs, the process, things they do, reinforce to their people what discipleship actually looks like. And so if the church is going to recapture the essence of discipleship, I think we need to provide a, a robust, practical definition and create structures, create pathways to actually see that accomplished. So number one, I think Alan Hirsch is onto something. We have no definition, no processes that reinforce what we're trying to accomplish. Number two, he says we live in line with wrong stories. He says that the systemic consumerism is wholly antithetical to true discipleship. And I want to say absolutely, absolutely, that the reality is, is that consumerism as a story that is pressing down on America is like so deep that it's like asking a fish what water is. If you're to ask a fish what water is, what would they be like? Oh, I forgot there's even water here. Because they just swim in it and it's just there, it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere. And same thing with consumerism. The idea that we can consume, that we can use whatever we want, that having more is going to survive for us and give us what we really want, works directly against the Christian story. I don't want to bang on that anymore. What I want to say is that what I don't see Alan Hirsch say is it's not just the wrong story of consumerism that's pushing down on us. It's that most Americans do not have a proper story of Christianity that informs their discipleship. It fails to make disciples, the church does, because it does not know its own story. We live in this story of consumerism and we live in a story of Christianity and most of the times our Christianity is this, this like you know, syncretistic blending of both of those. 
And we don't know, I mean, I bang on this every week. I'm just going to go one more time. Like, where are the streets of gold located, everybody? Heaven, right? No, they're not in heaven. But why does everyone say they're in heaven? Because we think the end of the story is floating up there. It's not on a renewed earth. And if we don't know the end of the story, it means we don't know the beginning of the story. And if you don't know the beginning and the end, you mess up everything in the middle. That's true with every story, not just the biblical story. And so I think one of the reasons why we struggle, and I'm going to bring this back to Redemption Church, is that the story of God is not, number one, known, and it's not cherished. And we need to actually come back and know the biblical story and have that story capture our affections. So, the church in America, I don't think, has a great definition. Great. What about us? Do we have a definition? Do we have an understanding of what we're trying to go, what we're trying to achieve, and how we want to get there? So with this in mind, I want to examine our verse. It's a very short verse. In Matthew chapter 4, in verse 19, where Jesus says this, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus is beginning his public ministry. He is gathering his disciples to himself. And now he is looking at Peter and his brother Andrew. And they say, and he says to them, come follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Let's look at this little phrase. First of all, I find it interesting. Jesus does not say, come and learn from me. It's wrongly assumed that people who know a lot about the Bible are mature in their faith. I say this sincerely from the bottom of my heart. Lots of people look at me and like, you are a mature Christian because you know so much about the Bible. And I want to say there are many people in Redemption Church who have a stronger faith and love for God than I do. And I know more than they do. That doesn't necessitate... Boy, I'm getting excited. It's falling off. That does not necessitate the fact that you know a lot about the Bible, that you are a disciple. You're in the process of discipleship. We're not just trying to know more about the Bible. So, for example, someone can know profoundly the doctrines of God's sovereignty and dissect the difference between... Pelagianism and Arminianism and, and Calvinism and can actually differentiate all those things and understand all the deep parts of superlapsarianism. And you're all like, what the heck are you talking about? And I'm just saying, you can know all of that. And yet when tragedy hits your life, you have no true reality and understanding of the sovereignty of God in your life and it throws you for a loop and you just abandon ship. You can know the difference between systematic and biblical theologies and know biblical theologies times a hundred and trace all the themes that there are in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. But you know what? You're still emotionally immature and have no ability to form deep, meaningful relationships with people. And that is part of discipleship. You know everything, but you have no relationships. Just because someone knows a lot about the Bible does not make them mature in their faith. And yet, the church 
has consciously, maybe subconsciously, reinforced this pathway. If I were to ask a hundred pastors, including me, do we think that just knowing things makes people mature? How many people be like, yes, that's right? They wouldn't say that, would they? But the processes, the pathways, the structures that they have are what? How do they form disciples? It is all, and this is not, I feel like I'm banging. I'm not, this is coming back to us, okay? But the reality is, is they say, come back to this building and sit and learn from the professional. And so they come back to the building and learn from the professional over and over and over again. And they invite their lost people to come and hear the gospel from the professional. And everything that is happening is what? It is here at the building learning from the professional. It's reinforcing that if you want to grow and be a mature disciple, you need to come to the church building and learn. And so, subconsciously, churches seek to mature their people through information transfer. Jesus doesn't say, come and learn. He says, come and follow. Now, caveat. Do I think learning is important? If you've hung out with me for six minutes, you know it's very important. So I'm not trying to minimize growing in our understanding and knowledge of who God is and the scriptures. I'm just saying that can't be the sum total of what we're actually trying to accomplish. Number two, Jesus does not say, come and obey. He says, come and follow. At this point, someone's going to say to me, well, Scott, obviously... Being mature in one's faith is not measured by how much you know about the Bible. It's not measured about being knowers of the word, but discipleship is about what? Being doers of the word. Discipleship is about doing. It's about looking like a certain aspect. It's measured not by how much you know, but how much you put into practice. In one sense, I want to say yes, but in another sense... For all of you people who are my age, we're going to talk about practice. Yes, we're talking about what is the practice that we're putting into practice. See, most of the time I think the practice being doers of the word that we infuse with our life and are trying to grow in our discipleship is more about ethics and morality and obedience then it is actually joining Jesus on the front lines of mission. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But oftentimes, discipleship is measured. And it becomes nothing more than seeking to have a better version of ourselves. Discipleship is not about just forming a better version of yourself. One that has the ability to stay away from sin and one that has the ability to manage sin. This mindset is not discipleship. This mindset is sin management. We're trying to keep our sins at bay. And if we can sin less, the less we sin, the more holy we are, the more mature in our discipleship we are. How many of you have heard this thought before? Not that you believe it, but that's the idea. And so we think that our mirroring the ethical conformity of Jesus is actually what discipleship is all about. There's two problems with this. 
at least. Number one, lots of people use the idea of like Romans chapter 8 verse 29 that we need to be conformed to the image of Jesus. We heard this? So we look at what Jesus looks like. And what was Jesus? Kind, compassionate, truthful. And I want to say, again, I need to say this right now before you get mad at me. We need to look like Jesus. We need holiness. We need kindness. We need to obey. In fact, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. So it's not that obedience is unimportant. The problem is, is that when we look at the idea of being conformed to the image of Jesus, being conformed to the image of Jesus is not simply a morality, a ethical test. When Paul and the other New Testament writers talk about image, do you know where they're going back to? Genesis chapter 1, that we were made in the image of God. And most commentators, and I think this is very important for us to think through, and if you want a, a book on this, I would encourage you to read. There's a brand new book came out by a woman theologian at Biola called Being God's Image. And it's a very easy, accessible um, read into the idea of what it means to be in the image of God. And most Hebrew scholars are saying the better idea is not being made in the image of God as it is being made as the image of God. Being made as the image of God is that this is more of like an identity. This is who we are. We are the image of God. We are the representatives of God on the earth. So that humans have this unique status, this unique relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that gives us responsibilities over the earth. And so man and woman, you and I were made to image God by representing Him, ruling over the earth He created. And that idea of representing and ruling and reigning over the earth that God has created is far more than just not lying has way more to do with what we do with all of our life than just whether or not we obey or told the truth or didn't steal the cookie. And one of the things they begin to say about this is that all those ethical behaviors of obeying the Ten Commandments are tied up into it, but it cannot be the sum total. All of this means that if the goal of discipleship is to be conformed to the image of Jesus, it means far more, not less than, obedience. So that's one problem. The second reason is experiential. The first one is a theological problem. The second one is experiential. And this is just crazy. How many of you have neighbors that are way nicer than you? Okay, let's just be honest. They probably, lots of them don't even follow Jesus, and yet they are like serving you like crazy. This has happened to me just recently. Some friends of ours have come and get to know these people, and they're, I mean, this lady, she's like the nicest person I've met in a long, long time. And she doesn't claim to follow Jesus. That's all right. I mean, I want her to follow Jesus, and we're getting to know her and all of that, but here's the idea. Your neighbors who claim to follow Jesus actually are probably far more ethically looking like Jesus than you are. That's a problem, isn't it? Because Christianity says this, your righteousness, your ethical conformity does not determine your standing before God. 
Everyone else in the world, as Tim Keller says, apart from Christianity, are trying to build their righteousness and to look like this certain way so they can be right with their God, whoever that is. And Christianity says, at the heart of it, it has nothing to do with what you are as a person and what you do. It has everything to do with who Jesus is and where you put your trust. Jesus does not say, come and learn. Jesus does not say, come and obey, even though learning and obedience are tied up in discipleship. What does he say? Jesus says, come and follow. Come and follow. Follow is this word of movement, correct? It's not static. It's not stationary. It's not just staying in one place. When my children were younger, on the next slide, you know, they'll probably be like, every time I tell a story, like, that's not true. Okay, well, this story is true. All the other ones are true as well. We'd go hiking in the Adirondacks. And if you haven't been to the Adirondack Mountains, it is now on your bucket list. All right, it is some place you need to visit. It's some place that we as a family love and um, spent a lot of time there. And I love to climb the mountains when we get to there. And when my kids were younger, even younger than this, but here's the picture I have of us up on top of the mountain. You know, you're helping your kids all along the way. First of all, they need me to get there. Like, they have to follow me, or I have to tell them where to go. Otherwise, they're just going to get lost in the middle of nowhere and get eaten by black bears. I would teach them how to traverse the rock structures that are wet, that are like steep rocks, if you've ever been in a mountain with these. How to get across the wet, marshy grounds. Where to put their feet with all the tree roots that are like thousands and thousands everywhere, tree roots that on the way down because you're so tired you trip and fall, even adults. And there was far more joy when everyone was excited and helped each other get across those crazy, man, this thing is crazy, help each other get across all those difficult parts. But notice something. The goal of this hike was not simply to learn the right techniques of mountain climbing. It wasn't to learn the right way of climbing the mountain. No, those were all needed to get where? To the goal. The goal was not to look at the bottom of the mountain and just stay there and be like, I just bought all this nice new hiking gear and I look good. Okay, if you haven't figured it out, it's not come and learn. It's not just come and learn all the right techniques of how to climb the mountain. It's not just look good and have all the right ways of acting and so you look the part. Is it helpful to get to the top of the mountain and know how you're going to get there and what to do? Is it nice to have the right equipment? Yeah, those are all necessary, but the goal is to get to the top of the mountain. Following Jesus is like that. It implies that Jesus is going somewhere. He's accomplishing something. And we're not to stay at the bottom of the mountain and just keep looking good. And we're not just following Jesus to learn cool new tricks. What are we doing? We're following Jesus into the story that he himself entered into and the story that he is fulfilling and completing through his life, death, resurrection, and second coming. 
What I want to say is that Jesus is inviting his disciples to follow him into what he is actually doing. And I'm just going to use that phrase, into his story. And notice, Jesus makes a direct connection here between coming to follow him and making them fishers of men. Follow me, and he makes a promise. What's that promise? I will make you become fishers of men. Discipleship is becoming a fisher of men. In this passage, this is what Jesus is inviting his, his disciples into. Now, whatever fishers of men means, it must be informed not by the modern techniques of fishing and not by the ancient techniques of fishing. Whatever it means, it must be informed by the overall storyline of Scripture. Otherwise, you are just putting your own ideas upon what fishers of men actually means. This, as we will see, is not a brand new idea Jesus just came up with. However, because most of us not to be mean, don't really know the Old Testament very well, we turn this verse into following Jesus is becoming a great evangelist, right? Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. What does fishers of men mean? Well, I think I have a, yes, here you go. Here's what it means. I just found this on Christianity.com on the next slide. This is their commentary. It's a little, little, can you read that? I don't know. I'll read it out loud for you too. Here's what they say about fishers of men. Fishing is unpredictable. There's no guarantee of reward. It requires patience and risk. In faith, the fishermen throw their nets into the deep water, letting it sink into the lake out of sight, hoping that the reward for their efforts would be a catch. Fish will not jump in the boat even if you're Bert and Ernie. Fishers must search for them and take a risk by follow, throwing their nets into the water. Could they possibly go through a bunch of work and never get a single fish? Absolutely. This happened multiple times in Scripture, but the risk was worth the reward. In the same way, this is our model for evangelism. We take the story of Christ and the message of what he has done for us, and we speak it out into the world around us. Okay? So... We take fishers of men, we immediately say this is evangelism, and we need to actually know the techniques and the skills and the risks and the rewards of what it means to be a fisherman, and we take those same ideals into our fishing for men through evangelism. So if you're not a good fisherman today, like Matthew, poor Matthew, he's a tax collector, he was totally stuck like Chuck, he had no idea what to do. He had to like go from Peter and learn what it was to be a fisherman. Or is Jesus doing something different? Or is Jesus just being punny? Hey, you're fishers, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. As if like Matthew was a doctor, he's like, I'm going to make you a healer of men. Or if whatever, you know, they're a baker and I'm gonna, you're going to be the bread of life. Like Jesus was not just being punny. But again, because we don't know our story... And we have these ideas of what Christianity is. We just say, well, this is evangelism. We need to learn how to be good fishermen. And how to, I mean, there's books on how to cast your lure for evangelism. I'm not lying to you. 
And it's not that these books are wrong. But I just want to ask this question. Where did Jesus come up with the phrase, fishers of men? Like, where did he decide to use that phrase? I don't think Jesus coined the phrase as much as he took it from the Old Testament. You're like, fishers of men is in the Old Testament? It absolutely is. Look in Jeremiah chapter 16. It's on the screen for you. Jeremiah is making a prophecy that says this, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord who lives brought the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their land that I gave to their fathers. Okay, so what is Jeremiah saying? He's saying there's coming a day when the nation of Israel is no longer going to look back at the Exodus event and say, look at how amazing that event was. Do the Jews still think that was the most amazing event in all of their history? Yes. They celebrate the Passover every year to commemorate the, the bringing of the people out of bondage, out of Egypt. It's, it's like the event for the Jewish people. And Jeremiah is saying there's coming a day where there's going to be a new exodus. Me and this thing are going to fight very quickly. I don't know if it's my old man glasses or what. All right. There's coming a day where there's going to be a second exodus. A second bringing everyone back from the north countries and from all the nations where God has scattered them. And he's going to bring them back. And this event is going to be so amazing that they're not even going to talk about the first one. It's going to be so superior. So verse 16, the very next verse says, how is this going to happen? Wow. Any, any help? How is this going to happen? How is all these second Exodus event going to happen? Well, here it is. Look in verse 16. Jesus says, I'm going to send for many fishers. And they will catch them. And afterward, I'll send for many hunters. And they shall hunt them from every mountain, from every hill, and out of the clefts of the rock. Jeremiah prophesies that on that future day of the second Exodus event, when God is going to gather all the people back and bring all the exiles back to the temple, back to Jerusalem, back to himself, who is God going to use to bring everybody back? Fishermen. What is Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 4? The day of the second exodus is starting right now. And you are going to be the people that Jeremiah prophesied who are going to go to the nations and bring all the nations back. Jesus is not just being pithy. He's not just being punny. He's actually saying the time of the story is happening right now is the time of the second exodus. And you people... Peter, James, and John, and Matthew, and all the others are going to be the fishers of men who are going to bring back all the exiles. Following Jesus does not necessarily require fishing knowledge. It requires far more an understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he calls the fishers of men to do. 
as the day of salvation is now here, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the day of salvation is not believe him today, right now. The day of salvation began when Jesus came and sent his fishermen out to gather the nations. And after he spends three years with them, what does he do? He says, I will make you become fishers of men. And then at the end of Matthew, he says what? Go make disciples. They are going to be the people who are going to bring all the people back. And so this is the day that we live in. So with this in mind, I offer this definition of discipleship. Discipleship is the progressive transformation of one's life story into the story of God by playing their spirit-given role. What does that mean? It means that your life story needs to be shaped and be a participant more and more and more into the story of God and you have been gifted by the Spirit uniquely to play a certain role, a certain character, a certain place in that story, and you need, we need to learn who you are and what your role is in the story. How do we measure discipleship? Not by how much we know, not by how much we obey, but by how well we are participating in the story that Jesus has called us into. And so I, this is just part one. We might be a seven-week series. The sexuality might start in November. But the point is, is that here's what I want us to just start with. That the groundwork, that what we're trying to do is participate as a church, as a people together, in that story. And beginning to learn who you are and what role you play in that story. And the more that your life conforms to the story of God, and the more your life actually lines up with who God has uniquely made you to be, and you using you in that story, the more mature you are as a follower of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.